in an article this week I, uh, that I came across, I think it was this last week, I came across, it was, uh, it was a, a psychology article and uh, I tend to read a little bit of that just to keep myself informed of what's going on in the culture, but uh, in that particular article it said something about the fact that if you do something for long enough and regularly enough that people don't necessarily want you to do, they will soon tune out to it. Some of you might know what I'm going to. So I'm wondering whether I should change from a bell to something else. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, it is interesting. So uh, now, I, now I shake the bell and everybody goes, yeah, it's just Daniel. <laughs> now, where, where were you? What were we talking about? <laughs> yeah, I might, a, a foghorn. That would get us going. For <laughs> a gong, yeah. So we might, we might consider new methods of uh, calling people to attention. No. I hope, uh, I hope it's already been a blessing to you to be able to uh, come together to worship but also to celebrate uh, Mother's Day. And most of you who know me know that this is very out of character for me. Uh, and uh, lots of things have happened over the last six months that uh, the Lord's changed my focus and alignment on some things, which is good, I hope. Uh, but this morning I want to take us to, of course, the Scriptures And uh, I want you to note that uh, I'm starting later than I normally do when I preach. Just to be clear, I'm starting later than normal. (laughs) Thank you, Warren. That's great. (laughs) Oh, you're all so supportive. That's wonderful. (laughs) This morning, celebrations such as uh, Mother's Day bring with it uh, various feelings and responses. And I sat down for a little while on Friday to think about what some of those responses are. For some here this morning, it's going to bring joy. Your mother is living, kind, loving, and always has your best interests at heart. Some may feel joy. Some may feel sadness. Because your mother has passed away or you can no longer and you can no longer seek her help and advice. Some may feel regret. Some of the things you said or did while she was alive or around or some of the things you didn't say or didn't do may cause regret this morning. Anger. Some may have experienced violence, abuse at the hands of their mother or their parents And a day such as this is actually very hard. Some may feel confusion because you never had a mother at all and the whole concept is very vague. Perhaps there are even some today who experience similar feelings and emotions to these but for different reasons. Some may feel joy this morning because you recently had a child and you know the first-hand blessing of being a parent. Some in our midst may feel sadness because you've lost a child. And it breaks your heart. There may be those in the room who feel guilt because you've aborted a child or you've given one up for adoption. Again, you might feel regret this morning because you feel like you failed as a parent and could have done so much more. Some may feel a sense of friction because there remains great conflict between you and your family or your children. Some may feel anger Because your children do not respect, love and obey you as they ought. There are many circumstances this morning. There are many needs in each person's heart. And I want to be very careful when it comes to celebratory occasions. Because it conjures up immense differences of feelings for different people. We all approach a cultural celebration such as this in different ways. But here's what is true for all of us. Every human family is broken. Every human family is broken. And that is broken because of sin. There exists no perfect fathers. There exists no perfect mothers. And there's certainly no perfect children. Amen, mothers? No, not too loud, mum. Each of us bring to our families pride, selfishness, and our individual flaws. It's a little bit like the concept of church. You know, people talk about, I want to find the perfect church. And my answer to that is, don't attend because you'll wreck it. Because we all are broken, are we not? 
There's no perfect families. But what is amazing is that God chooses to save people from every category of life. That is a miracle. Nobody is outside the realm of God's salvation. No individual is too far gone that God cannot or will not swoop down and rescue them. God is in the business of saving people. And it doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter the cultural background, the racial background, the handicaps or the abilities. God is in the business of saving people. He saves the unmarried. He saves the happily married. He saves mothers. He saves saves fathers, children, the divorced, the homosexual, the widows, the widowers, and the list goes on and on and on. And interestingly, all of these individuals are found in the scripture, all of them, all those categories of life. And so this morning, rather than spend my time dealing with specifically motherhood in the Bible or God's pattern for women, which could be easily done today, I believe God would have me speak on a subject that is relevant to all of us, whether you come from a functional or a dysfunctional family. Join me this morning as I preach a message that I've entitled, What It Means to Be a Member of God's Family. What It Means to Be a Member of God's family. Lord, for the next few moments, you have placed some thoughts in my mind. Uh, I've written many of them on paper, uh, but Lord, I don't want to be uh, restricted to that which is in front of me. I pray you would lead and guide me. Uh, Lord, I pray that this would be helpful to both uh, those who are regular attendees here, to those who are visitors, to, that you would meet the needs of all of us here this morning as we look at this incredible subject that the Almighty God the King of kings and the Lord of lords should swoop down, rescue us and cause us to be a member of that spiritual family. What an incredible thought. Help us, Lord, to understand this in a greater way today, I pray. It's in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, first point, simple point for us to consider. I just want us to understand the family of God. I want us to understand what is meant when we say the family of God. Now, I have to pick myself up on this all the time. Sometimes in our Christian jargon, and I say that respectfully, our Christian vernacular, we prohibit people outside the walls of the church building from understanding what we're even talking about when we talk about the family of God. It's a foreign concept. It's not something that's easily understood unless we explain it. For example, if you've been here this morning, I might have already said it. We might say in our church, there is Brother Terry, there is Sister Jessica, etc. And for an onlooker, that sounds pretty weird. We don't go around the community and say uh, to the person at the bakery, hey, Brother Bob. That's kind of weird. But in the church setting, we have some jargon and some vernacular. We talk about being the children of God. We say things like Abba, Father. And for someone who's not from a Christian background... That's a very strange thing to hear and say. And it's not wrong, but we need to be careful that we explain what we're talking about. And today, my plan is to be very simple and to help us clarify what it means to be in the family of God. Here's some foundational truths that need to help us as we look at this this morning. First of all, under understanding the family of God, I need us to understand, first and foremost, according to the Bible, God created every human being. That's foundational truth. God created you. And may I say respectfully, I don't care what the world tells us. I don't care what the scientist tells us. God's word that is inerrant and correct and true tells us God created every person. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You are not here by accident. See, evolution and scientific research today suggests that you, are, you have no purpose. You were just uh, the result of some catastrophe, some cosmic bang millions of years ago. The Bible says the opposite to that. The Bible says you were created by God and with a purpose. You are not just swimming around this universe with no particular purpose. Number one, God created you. Number two, God created you to be unique and you are of great worth to him. 
These are foundational truths before we get to what the spiritual family is all about. God created you to be unique. Take your fingerprints alone, if nothing else. Every single person has unique fingerprints. God designed it that way. But your character, the blending of your, uh, uh, your personality and your charisma or your lack thereof and your social and your interactions, and so we are made to be unique by God. And most importantly, we are of great worth to God. If you are the result of a big bang, of an evolutionary ape-like figure that you have evolved from, you have no worth. But God created you and you have great worth to him. And because of our time constraints this morning, all of my notes, as I say most weeks, are available to you. All the Bible references are in these notes, but we don't have the time this morning to go through each one. Number three, God instituted family, marriage and procreation. Some of you who may not come from church backgrounds may wonder, well, where did even this institution of marriage come from? It came from God. God created the institution of marriage. God is the author of family. God is the author of procreation, childbearing. That was all God's idea. That wasn't man's idea. That was God's idea. And may I say this to us, in our culture today, because this was God's initiative, he has ownership over it. He created it, therefore it is to be done his way. And we know that that is not the case in our culture today. God instituted family, marriage and procreation. Number four, as a, uh, an int- introduction to this matter of spiritual family, God produces children as a result of sexual intercourse. We know that. We know that the reality of a husband and a wife coming together, if God sees fit, children will come out of that relationship. But we need to understand that's a work of God. That is a work of God. Two humans are involved, but it's a work of God. God created that new life. It wasn't you. It wasn't you and your husband, you and your wife. It was God who did that. Birth and life are a gift of God, not a case of luck or fortune. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that in today's society, this has been greatly distorted We have moved a long way from the truth found here in the pages of Scripture. The Bible teaches us that a family is established when a man and a woman leave their parents to be joined together under God in holy matrimony. In fact, Mark tells us that the two become one. The Bible says the two become one. And this union usually results in children at some point. Let me just go a step further here this morning, not to offend, but to help you understand God's Teaching, contrary to contemporary culture, marriage is reserved for one man and one woman bound together as long as they both shall live. It is heterosexual. It is monogamous. It is intimate. It is a God-centered relationship and it's designed by God to be a foretaste of heaven on earth. That's God's design for it. Now, if you look at your own life, if you look at your own marriages, if you look at your own partners or whatever it might be, you'll probably find that we're a long way from God's design in the general sense. Hopefully, as Christians, if you're a Christian, we're aiming to be more like that. But the world is on a different trajectory altogether. However, God's plan for one woman and one man for life was affected greatly by sin. It brought conflict It brought separation. It brought dysfunction. It brought inversion of all of God's orders. And we see that everywhere we go today. Now, you might say, why are you spending so much time talking about physical family? I thought you said this was about the spiritual family. I believe it's important foundationally to understand God's design for the physical family because then we will see what God's design is for the spiritual family. So here's our question. What is the family of God. Simply put, the family of God consists of all those individual people who have been born spiritually, not just physically. Now, to an outsider, that sounds really strange. What does it mean to be born spiritually? We'll talk about that in just a moment. Everybody in this room is alive because you were born. I don't know if you knew that, but you're alive today because you were born. 
And uh, by the way, you're alive today because God sustains your every breath as well. However, not everybody in this room has been born spiritually. In fact, some of you might have heard the term born again. Misused a great deal in our culture, but it's a wonderful term, born again. And that's what I want to look at for a few moments here. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3? John chapter 3. If you haven't got a Bible in front of you, someone sit next to you or show you where it is in the scripture. John chapter 3. I'm going to read a number of verses here. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that is teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 16, just a few verses down, uh, verse 15 rather. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. A very quick summary of this passage of scripture. It's a wonderful portion. Here comes Nicodemus, a well-educated academic Jew of the highest order in this time. He knows probably the first five books of the Bible off by heart. Very common in that day for someone of this level to know five books of the Bible, word for word verbatim, knows them off by heart. Here is a very educated man. He knows a lot. And Jesus says to him in verse number three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of people take... uh, Take offence at the thought, well, perhaps not offence, but a lot of people look at this passage and, and they, uh, they say, what's wrong with Nicodemus in response? I think Nicodemus asks a really important question next. Because on a human level, he says this, how can a man be born when he's old? That's a good question. If Jesus is saying, you must be born again, Nicodemus, thinking as a human without spiritual eyes, says, well, how can I, can I enter into my mother's womb a second time and be born? This is ridiculous. This is not possible. What are you talking about? And the Lord Jesus says in verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, natural birth, is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Here's what the Lord Jesus is saying to this very smart academic Hebrew ruler. He is saying it is one thing to be born in the flesh. All of us have been. But it is a very different thing to be born by the spirit. He says there one unless one is born of water, that is the flesh and of the spirit, you will never see the kingdom of God. Being a member of God's family is to be born of the Spirit. Again, we say that sounds like a lot of jargon. We're going to explain that in just a moment. But we need to understand there are two births. There's not one if you are to be in the family of God. There is a physical birth and there is a spiritual birth that is required. Now, before we go on and I explain how that looks and what that looks like, The spiritual family, we need to understand, is made up of God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. Okay, We believe in the Trinity. One God, three uh, persons making up that one God. Complicated concept, not for us to get our head fully around. But the reality of it is we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They form the first part of the family of God. And then everybody else who is born of the Spirit, which I'll explain in a minute, enters into that wonderful family of God. It is not a physical family. We don't suddenly get to see God in the flesh right now, but one day we will. One day we will. But it is different. We need to understand that there is a difference between physical and spiritual birth. If you only have one birth in this life, you will have two deaths. You will die physically and you will die spiritually. If you have two births in this life, you will die once, and that is just physically, but not eternally and spiritually. And I'll explain some of that again in a moment. Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was teaching. He was thinking on a human level. And I'm asking this morning that you would think on a spiritual, biblical level as we look at this. So that's the family of God. It's a spiritual family. The second thing this morning I want us to note. Entrance into the family of God. It's one thing to understand what the family of God is on paper. It's a very different thing to enter into the family of God. That second birth. Now obviously, I hope obviously this morning, we're not talking about a physical birth a second time. We're not talking about being reborn physically. It's a spiritual concept. So here's the question we're going to ask now. How can I become a child of God? How can I be a member of God's family? I'd like you to turn just a couple of pages back to John chapter 1 and find verse 9 with me, if you would, please. John chapter 1 and verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This has got to be held in the highest esteem, this particular verse. It tells us what is the privilege given, the privilege conferred upon those who believe on the name of Jesus. Now, in the Bible, really, really importantly, especially if you're visiting and you don't familiar with the scriptures, you need to understand when the Bible talks about a name, it's different to what we say today about a name. If I say my name is Daniel. You know, that's my title. That's how you can call me. But in the Bible, when it says believe in the name, it doesn't mean just simply believe that Jesus is his title. It means believe in the person, the nature, the essence of that individual, what he is, who he is, and what he has done. That's what the Bible means when it says to believe in someone's name. In the name of Jesus, when we close in prayer, we often say, in Jesus' name. We're not simply saying, in Jesus, in his name, in Daniel's name, in Terry's name. We're saying, in the nature and essence and all that he has done, we pray. Amen. It's about his whole person and his identity. Turn with me, if you would, if you're able to find it. Galatians chapter 3, very quickly. Just want to show you one other passage here that will help us understand this matter of the family of God. Galatians chapter 3. And because of time constraints, I'll just read the one verse that's particular for us. I can't give us all the context right now. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. The Bible says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Both John chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 3 here speak of the same thing. Belief, faith reliance, 
dependence upon something other than myself. The means by which we enter into the family of God is in belief and faith. We have to ask this question then, of course. Well, what is it that I must believe? What is it that I must have faith in? What is it that I need to depend upon in order to enter the family of God? What does the Bible say I must believe? And I want to give you quickly five things. Five things that must be understood and believed in order to enter the family of God. Number one, the identity of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. Jesus is God and he came in the flesh, born in Bethlehem for a purpose. And that will form part of our other points here. But we must understand he is and was and always will be the son of God. By the way, he did not come into existence At his birth in Bethlehem, he merely became a man then. He was in existence long before Bethlehem in the presence of God the Father. And they were uh, together in perfect unity and are, but he became a man in order. And we'll talk about what that is in order to accomplish something for us. We must understand the reality of of the identity of Jesus, I should say. And this is what the Bible says, but these are written in the scriptures. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life. John chapter 20 and verse 31. I must believe in the identity of Jesus Christ. And when I say believe in it, it's not just, I know he was a historical figure. Nobody in this room can argue with that. Jesus definitely lived. Books are filled with his history, but it's not enough to believe that he existed. Must believe what he says about himself, the son of God. Number two, not just his identity, but I must believe in the reality of my sin. Now, if we're honest, most of us believe in the reality of everybody else's sin. But do I believe in the reality of my sin? My sin, my fault, my flaws, my transgressions. There is not a person in this world, as I said at the start, who is not broken and damaged by sin. We were born in a sinful state. We were born enemies of God, the Bible says, because of sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says the results, the wages, the outcome of sin is spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I need to understand who I really am. I am kidding myself if I think I'm okay. It doesn't take very long to look at my life, at your life, your heart, what goes on there to realize I am a sinner. I have broken God's holy law. I must understand the identity of Jesus. I must understand the reality of sin. Number three, I must understand the sacrifice of Jesus. God's perfect son, Jesus, came in human flesh to die upon a cross, not as a madman, as the world would say, but as a mediator between God the Father and man. Here's the point. Christ Or Jesus, same person, we call him Jesus Christ. He came to rescue you from sin. That's what he came to do. Long before you knew him, long before you had ever heard of him, he came with the purpose to save sinners. And he was the only one who was the appropriate sacrifice because he was perfect. It's no good a sinner dying for a sinner. What difference does that make? There's no point putting me on a cross for your sins. I'm as bad as the rest of you. You're as bad as me. It required a perfect sacrifice who could be the substitute for my sin. Who was able to stand or be in front of God the Father and say, I take their sin on myself in order that they might live. 
That is an incredible reality. And the world doesn't realize how incredible that the perfect son of God who had all the glory of heaven should clothe himself in human flesh, be born in a humble, meek stable. Why? For the purpose that he would grow up, show us what the truth of the scripture is, and then one day die on a cross and be able to say, I am the savior of the world. Believe in me and you will be saved. Nobody else in all of history, nobody else in all of humanity can ever die for another person and remove that guilt and remove that sin because we're imperfect. And so God sent his son to be the savior of the world, the Bible says. That's the point. That's the purpose. That's why we exist. We must understand the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus and I often say this, particularly at youth groups and things, if someone were to come alongside as we are having some fellowship in just a little while and, and one of those children were to run across the road and a, a truck is coming along and, and I go out there and I dive in the way and I push that child out of the way of that truck and I am myself killed for that, I have rescued that individual and sacrificed my life on their behalf. And you would all say, wow, what a hero that person is. You might uh, make monuments. You might have a, a national Daniel day. You might have whatever else. But you know what the reality of it is? A sinner died for a sinner in that case. That's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful sacrifice that I perform for that person. That's nothing on what Jesus did. He didn't have to die. He was perfect in the sense that there was nothing whatsoever that was wrong with him and he didn't have to die for sinners. But because God said, I love sinners and I want to rescue them, he obeyed the Father, came down and died for sinners such as us. That's incredible. That is a message that should penetrate every heart this morning. Whether you are saved for 40 years, this ought to thrill you. This ought to excite you. He died for me. But that's not the end. That's only three. We've got number four. Number four is, I must believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came from the glories of heaven and died on the cross and lay in the grave, was put into the grave, and he stayed there, we have no hope. Because if that man who is God in the flesh dies for sin but cannot come back to life, then I have no hope of eternal life. This whole thing of life after death cannot be a reality unless that perfect son of God died and then truly rose again. To prove that he was in fact God's son. Three days later, before the break of dawn, the tomb is empty. And it's not empty because people stole his body. It's empty because Jesus rose again from the dead to prove that he is the son of God and to prove that if you trust in him, you too will live after this life. To be a child of God is to understand the identity of Jesus. It is to understand the reality of my sin. It's to understand what Jesus has done in sacrifice. It's to understand the resurrection of Jesus. And then lastly and importantly, it is to understand what repentance is and to turn to the Lord Jesus. I must believe that God truly will save me when I ask him to. That God truly will change my life. That he will forgive my sin. That what he says is true. And that if I truly will come before him and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I am under the condemnation and wrath of God. But I know that in turning to you, you are my only hope for eternity. You are my only hope of being part of the family of God. Luke chapter 13 verse 3 says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish. You will die spiritually. You'll live this life, but you will have spiritual death in the next. And the Bible calls that place where you will abide the lake of fire. And I beg of you, choose Christ. Romans 10 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The greatest promise, I think, in the whole Bible is if you will call on the name of the Lord in integrity, recognizing these things, he says, I will save you. I will give you an entrance into my family, the family 
of God. Before we finish, I have one more point. We need to understand the family of God. We need to have an understanding of how to enter the family of God, point two. But I think it's appropriate for us this morning to understand the benefits of being a member of God, a member of God's family. Now, most of you know, we, uh, Jessica and I, we, we have a business uh, in town and we're thankful for the way in which we're able to continue to run that day by day. And I'm constantly confronted with uh, suppliers and uh, salespeople. You thought I was a salesperson. I get salespeople coming to see me all the time. Buy this, buy that, buy this. Make sure you put it in your shop, that sort of thing. And I have to, I have to listen to those people. I have to look at those emails. And I have to decide whether it's worth the investment. Am I going to fork out some money here to buy from that supplier in order that people in this community have what they need and we can sell it and continue to survive and so forth? You guys know what business is like, retail. And so I'm constantly having to do that. Is this worth my investment? Is what I've said this morning worth your investment? It's a good question. Now, we don't want to say, what do I get out of this? Because that's with the wrong motive. But I think it's fair to say, what are the benefits? What are the blessings associated with being a member of God's family? What are they? Here's a few. Everybody's going, yeah, right, a few. (laughs) Here we go. Number one. As a member of God's family, I have the privilege of understanding personal knowledge of God's surpassing love. Unfortunately, today, we judge love by what we see in the world. Because that's what we see all the time. We see love there, we see love here, we see forms and fashions of love. But until you come to understand the love of God, I can tell you you don't really know what love is. There is a love. There is a common grace in which love is seen in romantic relationships and long-term husbands and wives. And that's a wonderful thing. But that is just a snippet of God's love for you. So rich so full, unsurpassing by any other person in all of history, God's love for you. And this is what's amazing about it. It's not based upon your performance. It's based upon his person. It does not go like up and down like this, like ours does. You know, that person offended me. Suddenly, I don't really love them much anymore. We offend God all day long, and yet his love never changes. That is amazing. And I think perhaps, I don't know if I can say this for sure, but certainly one of the greatest aspects and benefits of understanding what it is to be a member of God's family is to know this love personally. And it is understood by faith when we come to know Christ. Number two, I'm not going to go through all these. I'm just going to give you a few. Number two, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit Now, again, this concept, Holy Spirit, what even are you talking about, preacher? I don't even know what the Holy Spirit is and why is he holy and what's the Spirit? Simply put, we have these three persons in the Godhead. We're dealing with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead there, is given to those who are Christians. And he literally, as a spirit, invisible, comes to live within the body of the Christian. You say, is there enough room? Well, he's got plenty of room here for me. But we talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit is not a physical, touch, tangible person. He is a spiritual person that comes to live within the Christian. And what he does is he speaks on uh, an inaudible level into the heart of Christians and encourages them in the way to go and teaches them what the scripture says. That's who the Holy Spirit is. And there is nothing in all the world like God living within. Nothing. One of the greatest blessings and benefits of being a Christian, entering into the family of God, is the Holy Spirit coming to live within you. Number three, the absolute assurance that I am a child of God. 
Absolute assurance. Never will there come a day if I am truly a Christian, if I've truly accepted Christ as my Saviour, there will never ever come a day where Jesus Christ rejects me. Ever. You say, oh, that's good, I can just do whatever I like. No, that's not how it works. I am his, I've been bought by him. But even when I do sin, I am no less his child. There is now no condemnation. There is no reason whatsoever in all the world, in all of eternity, whereby you will ever no longer be the child of God once you are his. What an assurance. What a hope. What a blessed thought that I am God's forever. Number four. I can't skip this one because this is just so critical to me. Being a member of God's family involves the wider family of God, which is called the church. Some of you may look on and say, well, what even is this? This seems a bit different to the RSL and the Rotary Clubs in town. There's something a bit different here. The difference here is that there is a spiritual union between people. We are not just people who have something in common, even though that's part of it. We are connected to one another. If you are a Christian, if you've exercised your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you are my brother, you are my sister. We are one in Christ as a local body and we're connected with every other Christian in all the world. I think that this has got to be one of the greatest benefits of being a Christian because there are so many, even in this room, physical family may have gone. There may be great constraints or restraints on your physical family, but there is a spiritual family whereby people come in here together on a Sunday and there is such love. There is such a connection and a closeness. And my prayer is that we never lose sight of that because we are the family of God. We're all different, different beliefs, different positions on lots of things. But if you are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my mother, my father, etc. There's a spiritual union and connection there. This is not just a club. It's not a club at all. This is a living organism that God instigated. Number five. I've got three minutes on that clock. Number five. One of the benefits of being a member of God's family, the power to defeat sin. Let me say again, too, all of these have verses attached to them. So get a copy of the notes. You can look at it yourself. The power to defeat sin. As a Christian now, I have, because the Holy Spirit lives within me, I have the ability to defeat sin. I'm never going to be sinlessly perfect in this life, but I don't have to be controlled by sin. Previously, I was under the dominion of sin. Now, Paul says, don't let sin have dominion anymore. It doesn't have to. You can kill sin day by day. You can overcome it. All the battles and difficulties in your life can be overcome by the power of the Spirit of God. And the closer we walk with him and the longer we walk with him, the the more and more like Christ we are supposed to become. So that one day we will be just like him. All sin gone. It'll be finished. But we have the power to defeat sin in our life. Number six. The word of God. We have the scriptures. You say, but I've got a copy of a Bible in my room. That's different. You as a Christian now with the Holy Spirit within this book is alive. This is not black words on white paper. This book is alive. And when the spirit of God within me connects, if I can use that term, it's not quite right, but connects with the author, which is the spirit of God, these words, and they come into connection with one another. There is an incredible union that takes place because when my spirit within me connects with what is in the word of God, it begins to change me. It begins to modify my inside and my outside so that what I was Last year is not what I am today. And what I am going to be next week is going to be different to what I am today because he's doing a work through the word of God. Some of you might say, you know, I've looked at the Bible a few times and boy, it just it doesn't do anything for me. Well, the question I would ask you is, are you a Christian? Because this book does something for the Christian. This book changes your life and it ought to. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong. I'm going to skip number seven real quick because I don't want to miss out on... Number eight. Number eight here on my list. And there were 15, but we're not going to do them, so it's okay. Is the privilege of bringing my needs to God in prayer. 
You know, we hear the world say, you know, I just pray about it, just do this, oh, I prayed for you and things like that. And it has no real meaning. It's very hollow. But for a Christian, I have direct connection with the Father. I can't see him. I cannot see God the Father in the flesh. He is a spiritual being, but my spirit has connection to him. And you say, how is that possible? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I am now clothed in his righteousness, where once I was a sinner under the condemnation of sin, now Jesus' righteousness has been given to me. He was my substitute. And now I can come to God the Father and say, Lord, I need your help. In this situation, I need your assistance and he promises that he will always hear his children. There is never a time where you do not have access to the father. And boy, are we tapped into power. This isn't just anybody. This isn't a pastor or a leader. This is almighty God. I have access to him. And by the way, perhaps there are those who've come from different backgrounds here. Uh, Some churches would have us believe that that access must go through an individual like a pastor or a priest or a father. That is not true. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. When you are in the family of God, you have access to the Father. Direct access. As you sit there. As I preach, I have access to the Father and am tapped into the power of God. What an amazing thought. I can bring my every need before him. And he promises to hear. And his will will be done. He may not always answer the way I want him to. But he has always got my best interest at heart. And that's why we say, Abba, Father. Daddy. That close intimacy. Only available in that. The last one I'm going to mention as I close. I don't know what number it is here, probably 14. Just trying to decide which one to tell you. I'll tell you this one. The certainty of Jesus' return and our new bodies. The Bible says in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet's going to sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This perishable body, this flesh, will put on that which is no longer perishable. And this mortal body will put on what is called immortality. Simply put like this. One day Jesus is coming again. He's coming again in the flesh, not invisible like God the Father. A flesh, a new body for the Lord Jesus when he was raised again in his new body. He's coming again in the flesh. We will see him. And what a day that's going to be. Christian, what a day that's going to be. This is the one of whom we have believed in. We staked everything on the Lord Jesus. We said, you died on the cross for me. I am going to give my life to you. I turn from sin, you're mine, and I'm going to see you one day. I believe by faith now, but then I shall see with my eyes. And I shall have a new body. And some of us are going, hallelujah, a new body. I can't wait. No more diabetes, no more a crippleness, no more struggles in the flesh. I'm going to have a new body and I will be with him. But the sad, the devastating reality is that there are two kinds of people when the Lord Jesus comes back. There are those who are members of his family and those who are not. And if you are not a member of his family, you will be judged He will not be your friend. He will not be your king. He will not be the one that you can adore and admire and worship. He will be that one that must, because he's holy, judge you if you have not accepted his gift of salvation. A holy God cannot look at sin. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. And today, now is the chance, the day of salvation, the opportunity for us to place our faith and trust in what he's done. And if we fail to do so on that day when he returns, there will be no more chances. But all for us who are Christians, take heart. Take heart. How many other blessings that we have? I'm just going to read them, the other ones. The loving discipline of God. The process of change wrought by God. The realization of my purpose in this world. The honor of serving God and telling others about him. The eternal inheritance. Participation in the Lord's Supper and baptism. And the list goes on. So many other blessings and benefits of being a child of God. My prayer today is that we would understand this. Let me close by reading. We won't turn there. Psalm 40 verses 2 to 6. 
the author describes this salvation. This is what he says. He drew me from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock. He made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to my God. Many will see that and fear and they will put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray and follow a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Heavenly Father, even just saying that, Heavenly Father, knowing what that means, knowing the reality of coming to you as Father, spiritual Father, having been born again, I know, O oh Lord, firsthand what it is to have an intimate and wonderful relationship with you. And though I stray so often, yet you love me, yet sometimes I turn from the truth you never cast me out you've given me your spirit that lives within you've changed my life my heart my affections my emotions my appetites you've changed everything and oh lord my great desire today is that others would see this and know the reality of being a member of god's family that lord some here understand this and I pray that their hearts would be so encouraged uh, in these truths as they consider their own salvation and their own walk with you. They consider just the privileges and the blessings of being one of your children. But Lord, my heart goes out to those in particular who don't know this reality. They have heard it this morning, but I pray that your spirit would move upon their heart, cause them to see it in a way they have not before. Illuminate this truth, I pray that we would rejoice over a sinner being saved by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for this time in your word and for the attention of these people. Uh, may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.